You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast. This is episode 164 and today on the show we are joined by Dr. Will Cole. Dr. Cole was named one of the top 50 functional medicine and integrative doctors in the nation and is a health expert and course instructor for the world's largest wellness brands such as Mind Body Green and Goop. As I mentioned, Dr. Cole is a leader in the space of functional medicine. Past books include Ketotarian, The Inflammation Spectrum, and today we will be discussing his latest book, Intuitive Fasting. So guys, you will have heard us talk on the show about fasting. In today's episode, we dive into the history of it, the mechanics of it, what it is, why it's important, why it's kind of against the grain in the West. You know, we're told that it's bad to be hungry. But, you know, we delve into, is that really the case? We delve into a high-fat diet. Is this beneficial? We also look at a quote which Will says, which really hit home for me. And he says, you can't heal a body that you hate. Guys, I really, really enjoyed recording this with Will, he is a real, real good guy, and I'm sure you he knows his stuff. So, without any further ado, this is episode 164 with Dr. Will Cole. Welcome to the show. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I'm excited to talk with you today. Man, my pleasure. So, you've written a book on fasting, um, what I liked in the book, which I found interesting, was that you talk very eloquently that in the developed world, for many of us, we never, ever go without hunger. Hunger is kind of like a myth to us. We eat our three meals a day. We eat our snacks. Um, so I wonder, could you talk about the difference between intuitive fasting, as you put it in the book, as opposed to, I think, what most people do when they go on like a diet, which is this negative focused calorie restrictive mindset that we often see when people are trying to lose weight yeah so i a lot of what my work is as a functional medicine practitioner and i guess to give people a little bit of um, a context into where i'm coming from um, i'm a functional medicine practitioner i started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world so my whole focus for the past decade from sunup to sundown has really been consulting people via webcam and seeing so many different types of people, so many different types of labs, so many different types of preferences when it comes to eating and so many hurdles that keep people back from feeling great. So I take that really seriously. And from that experience, I, you, you don't realize until you really look back and be are introspective about it is how much that forges and galvanizes your perception on food and wellness and what keeps people back and and really the things that I know will move the needle in a considerable way. So people's 
relationship with food, people's relationship with their bodies, people's relationship with wellness and health and as a whole is, is the seed of either dread and obsession and an unhealthy relationship and orthorexia and all that negative stuff. Or if they really come out to it with, doesn't mean they're perfect. doesn't mean that they've got it all sorted out, but at least they are being intentional with redefining that perspective towards food and health and wellness and movement, whatever the case may be. If you start shifting your perspective to how can I love my body enough to feed it good things that make me feel great? How can I do acts of movement that makes me want, that makes, that elevates how I feel? Or how do I take a break from eating for a time to be more introspective, to give my body time to repair all in balance with a measured approach? That is everything. So I, I, I think that there's a lot of dogmatic um, food uh, dogma and food confusion out there on like what the heck people should do. And there's a lot of shame around food. So what I'm trying to do with my patients and what I'm trying to do for the readers in, in intuitive fasting is redefining all of this stuff as tools, tools to enhance your what life. Um, so eating healthy food isn't about punishing people. It's about feeling great. And doing flexible intermittent fasting is not an eating disorder disguised as a wellness practice. It is a really a gift for yourself to, to enhance your health. So, and, and avoiding things that make you feel lousy is not, is not restrictive, it's self-respect. So this is just the paradigm shift that I want people to have uh, for themselves. And that was, that was a really, really great answer. And it was interesting because what I loved um, was that uh, growing up in the UK in particular, um, from literally the moment I was in school, I was always told breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I was told this for my entire life. And by people that didn't mean, they didn't mean bad. I think mm -hmm. that they just didn't know any better. And, and as we talked about, you know, we, we've all been conditioned, I suppose, to... to to, to avoid the, the, the fear of being hungry, to avoid that pain. So before mm -hmm. we delve into fasting, one thing which really caught my eye that I, I, I briefly touched on this with Frank Lipman, who was on the show last week, um, okay. was you mentioned this in the book, is this concept of hormesis and kind mm -hmm. of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Now, I found mm -hmm. this really, really interesting in the book. I think this would be a great uh, preface before we delve in. So could you talk about uh, hormesis? Yeah. And Dr. Lippmann's a dear friend of mine as well. So you're, I'm in good company, I guess, <laughs> us talking about this stuff. So um, hormesis, um, that, that I, I talk about the history of the concept in the book, which is really fascinating. I'm a history nerd uh, as well as a health nerd. So there was this king in um, the Black Sea region um, a long time ago. I forget the year, but his name is Mithridates. And he uh, he thought his mom was going to poison him. And when you know history of royals and that, that's happened quite a bit around the world is people <laughs> yeah. trying to poison you if you were the one in power uh, and family members would do this too. So this king, for whatever uh, it's worth, he thought that. So he would give himself low amounts of poison to uh, in hopes that he would build up a tolerance if he ever was poisoned. And as the story goes, that he did not die when he was poisoned, he, he, he survived. Whether that's 100% true or not, I mean, that's the or origins of the concept of it. And then 
the, the dose makes the poison sort of came come from that. And, and then research started looking at this concept, not from so much poison as so much, but beyond that are what are acts of hormesis or, or hormetic effects that um, will, you, will put some stress on the body physiologically, but will actually make your body more resilient and stronger. So exercise is actually a force of hormesis. When someone's doing a high intensity interval training, that's hormesis. Uh, cortisol levels come up, stress levels come up, uh, but that's part of the hormetic effect that makes the body stronger with working out. Cold therapy is a hormetic, has a hormetic effect. Uh, saunas have a hormetic effect and intermittent fasting has a hormetic effect. And if you go an extra mile, uh, a ketogenic diet, which is fasting mimicking, um, has a hormetic effect as well. So all of these things are think that are amazing tools to use in balance. So, and that's where the context of all of this matters. Working out all day long, every day isn't a good thing. Being in an ice bath all day long isn't good. Being in a sauna all day long isn't good. Being in ketosis forever and ever, amen, isn't good for most people. Just like fasting, obviously, it's called starvation. Uh, so it's all in a measured approach. You can really leverage amazing benefits if we allow our body to do it. So it, it's, it shifts our body into the state of specific to fasting. It's shifting our body into the state of ketosis, which has a lot of healing benefits. But that's what hormesis is. It's a good stress that makes you stronger. I love that. And we're definitely, we're going to get, get granular on this topic today. But since you mentioned that you um, enjoy looking at the history of uh, things, you talk in the book about the history of fasting. Could you mm. tell us about the history of fasting? Yes, by all means, if you've given me an opportunity to. <laughs> Normally people don't ask me that question. That's like what stuff I like talking about too. Uh, so I mean, let's talk it from an ancestral health perspective. Uh, humans would have not had food availability all the time. I know that's shocking to us in living in modern life. I mean, even though food scarcity is still a major problem for some people and needs to be dealt with, but for many of us, we live in luxury relative to the totality of human history, uh, where food scarcity was a very major thing across the globe um, in a massive way. Uh, so we researchers estimate that our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years. So if you look at the base, we're basically living with the same DNA for 10,000 years as a human race, but yet what we've evolved with and adapted with over that time, the world has changed very dramatically in a very finite period of time when you're putting it in context with the totality of human history. So if you're taking an ancestral health perspective, this epigenetic mismatch, this epigenetic genetic mismatch, this, this DNA and the environments around us, our genes are living in a brave new world where it's not adapted to this tons of facets of modernity, whether that's food availability and then on top of that food quality and then what is happening in the environment and technology and all that stuff, amazing advancements. And I'm not taking anything away from that, but it comes with a price tag for many people in the form of chronic health problems, autoimmune issues, mental health issues, inflammatory issues, metabolic issues. So that's what researchers are really exploring this genetic epigenetic or evolutionary mismatch uh, between our DNA and, and the world around us. But if you also look, so why, I, why I'm saying that is that fasting is actually encoded in our DNA. So by doing times of fasting, it's 
it's decreasing that chasm, that decreasing that mismatch between genetics and epigenetics. So it's more in alignment with our biochemistry, which is what researchers are looking at is why do people see all these healing benefits? Why is that? Well, we're giving our body a chance to do things it's evolved to do for a long period of time, but we're just down-regulating all those pathways by living incongruent with what we've evolved with. So that's the ancestral health perspective. But from a historical perspective, you look at the fathers of, of founders of, of, of modern medicine, Hippocrates, every doctor takes a Hippocratic oath. Most people know about him, right? First do no harm. He said, all disease begins in the gut. I mean, he knew all these things well before we had randomized controlled trials in, in the scientific <laughs> literature, but that's why he's the father of medicine and I'm not. <laughs> and so we, and, and he knew this thousands of years ago in Greece somehow. And he also used fasting for his patients, not because he had research, but because he saw the amazing health benefits for people. And then same with this guy named Paracelsus. Paracelsus was known as the father of toxicology. He's also known as the Martin Luther of medicine because he was reforming medicine at, at the time in the late 1400s, early 1500s in, Greek, in uh, Switzerland, sorry. And he called fasting the, the physician within, which I think is a really eloquent way of putting it. When you look at all the science and the health benefits and the mechanisms at play, the pathways it's supporting, it really is the physician within. It's this inner doctor that we're allowing to activate and to repair and to renew and to mend. Um, but then you look at it from a spiritual standpoint too, or a religious standpoint, hum human civilizations would have done it for both health purposes and spiritual purposes. So if you look at Judaism with uh, Yom Kippur and Tish B'Av and Christianity, Lent started out as a time of, of fasting, Islam with Ramadan, many indigenous cultures use fasting as well. So there's, there's a reason for that. All of this anecdotal and historical evidence, uh, both from a spiritual and ancestral and early medicine standpoint, uh, humans would have used fasting for many different purposes. Yeah, I love that. And, and uh, another thing as well, I mean, I've read um, I mean, stoic texts that they would go, say, 24 hours to prove to themselves that this would be like, if it was all taken away from me, this wouldn't be so bad. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, powerful. I, I'm also really interested in um, something you said there was that there's actually, it's coded in our DNA, there's evolutionary benefits to mm. fasting. Um, so, I'm just so obviously with with evolutionary benefits, you know, we we see a beautiful woman walking down the street and we we feel good or we eat um, some ripe berries or something like this. But but what you're saying as well is that there's actually evolutionary benefits to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and that's the hormetic effect. It's like wow. we could actually upregulate. If you look at these certain pathways that are actually quite dormant most of the time for people, it's things like autophagy. Uh, anti-inflammatory benefits, the pro-antioxidant pathways, the activation of stem cells, mitochondria, biogenesis, all this stuff we have and all humans are using, I mean, we would be dead with all this stuff happening to some degree, but it's so sluggish because of modernity. So it's like, okay, we're allowing our body to actually upregulate all these healing things, which is what researchers are really exploring with the longevity benefits, the anti-disease that blood sugar regulating, all that's this, these healthy benefits it is because humans would have evolved with it. And because, and these pathways we know are very much dormant or downregulated because of modern living. I, 
I, I, I love this. I really do. I want to jump into something you said, but then, then let's loop back to, to fasting. As you mentioned, blood sugar. What are some signs that someone's blood sugar levels could be out of whack? Mm. Well, I mean, this, these are things that I see all the time with patients and they don't know it. They think, and, and it is such a nebulous thing, like blood sugar. Why, why would I care? What's the, what's the input? What's, why, why should it matter to me? Why does it matter to me? Well, it really does matter. I mean, if, from a health standpoint, if you're, you have blood sugar imbalance, nothing's going to go right in your life. And it's estimated that about 50% of Americans, around 50% of people across Europe and the UK, they have a massive blood sugar problem. So we are, they're on this sort of insulin resistant spectrum where they are may not have full-blown type 2 diabetes, even though that number is an epic, it's the highest it's ever been in human history. But there are millions more that aren't diagnosable as type two diabetic, but they're on that insulin resistant blood sugar problem spectrum. And that is a, we need to realize that by, by the time someone's diagnosed with type two diabetes, research estimates it's about four to 10 years prior to that diagnosis when things were brewing on that blood sugar problem spectrum. So that's a, up to a decade. So where are you at now on that spectrum? That's what I want people to really have agency over their health about. So some symptoms to think about is uh, craving foods. Like if you really have insatiable cravings, primarily for carb carby foods, refined sugar, if you get hangry a lot, which is hungry and angry is evil spawn, you know, and if you get just really grouchy, if you can't like have that snack, or if you miss a meal, if you get really tired, if you, um, even after you eat, if you eat and then get really lethargic afterwards, if you get brain fog, or if you find you get low blood sugar or reactive hypoglycemia, um, if you have trouble losing weight, if you're, if you're struggling with weight loss resistance, if you have low sex drive, I mean, these are all um, signs of blood sugar problems. And then diagnostically, some things that I look at in labs, if your A1C is above 5.4, that's the beginning signs of that. I mean, we have some mi minor leeway there, but above 5.6, above 5 and these are American units, but um, above 5.6 is definitely um, in the insulin resistant range. In And for any of my patients in the UK, I just do the unit conversions. I don't know them offhand, but I, I figure out all the math stuff for it for you. <laughs> but the, uh, the triglycerides, we wanted to be under 100 um, above 100 is one sign that the body's starting to convert glucose or blood sugar as circulating fats. So that's well before the lab is going to call it pathological. So you can see that continuum on a lab years. It's almost like in the United States, the, uh, another history thing, but it's like Paul Revere saying the British are coming, the British are coming, but it's like, well, we know diabetes is coming. Diabetes is coming. You'll see triglycerides high for years before anybody says anything like, whoa, like you have type two diabetes. Now it didn't happen overnight. We can see the hallmarks of this pattern on labs. We want to look at HDL. We want to look at liver markers. I mean, there's so many other labs to, to consider, but both subjectively and objectively, these are some things to consider. So what is in this modern life? So what is driving pre-diabetes? Is it just the food? What is driving it? Well, it's, it's again, going back, the bigger picture is this evolutionary mismatch, I think. I think mm. that's the biggest component. It's this, our genes are living in this brave new world and we're eating foods that's out of alignment with our biochemistry. 
And we like to separate ourselves from nature, or we think that as humans, right, especially mo the modern human, we think we're so separate from nature, but the reality is we are part of nature. And the more we distance and do things in, that's not in congruency with it, the more problems will arise. Uh, so we are eating foods that are very disruptive to the microbiome, which is trillions of bacteria that we would have evolved with for a long, long time, well before 10,000 years. So it's uh, this, the microbiome, going back to Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, he said, all disease begins in the gut. A lot of these foods that people are eating are very disruptive to the predominance of our immune system. So when you're dealing with inflammation, which is a product of the immune system, you have to look at where the majority of the immune system lives, which is in the gastrointestinal system. So most people are eating things that are very disruptive to the microbiome, and that causes a whole host of systemic ripple cascade effects throughout the body. And then on top of that, we're eating so often too, which never gives our body a break. So that, that homeostasis, that fasting and feasting balance is thrown off. And we are always in this sort of indulgent state or most of the time we are. Uh, and on top of that, we're eating things that are very disruptive. So one of the studies that I mentioned in, in intuitive fasting is this circadian rhythm that researchers found in the microbiome. So we have certain colonies of bacteria that are higher in the morning and then some are higher in the evening, sort of this wave-like rhythm, just like cortisol has a circadian rhythm, the microbiome seems to have a circadian rhythm as throughout the day as well. Well, eating foods all the time, especially disruptive foods, very much disturb the microbiome, which is linked to type two diabetes and metabolic issues and autoimmune diseases and mental health issues and all types of inflammatory problems. So it's really an insult, an assault on the microbiome, which is an assault on our immune system, which drives up chronic inflammation. But fasting, and eating clean foods that are more in alignment with our biochemistry has been shown to reset that circadian rhythm of our microbiome, which is could be one of the causative uh, factors as to why it's so beneficial. It's interesting because in the modern lifestyle, and I'm not just specifically talking about COVID, but we overheat our homes, we, we don't walk, we take Ubers. Uh, there's very limited connection. As you say, there's a big disconnect with nature are you, as a doctor, I mean, are you really worried about this modern lifestyle? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, very much so. I think we can, I don't think it has to be either or. I think we can be both and and pick the best of modernity, but we need to have a checks and balances. And the problem is, I think uh, it's this compulsive, unfettered everything all at once where we need to have, and, and you're seeing this in many ways, we're forced to have a reckoning in some ways because the unsustainability of it all, I mean, we're talking from the top down, um, it's, it's on a macro and a micro level, it's unsustainable. So I think that I would love a reimagination of what modern life looks like where we could still have the best of modernity because we're connecting to people around the world right now. That's amazing. But can we have a healthier relationship with modernity that to, to, to live, in closer alignment with optimal human health. And I think all of these excesses are actually going to be our undoing. I love it, man. I love it. So let's look back to fasting. I started practicing intermittent fasting maybe three or so years ago. And the reason which I did was, um, was because I was quite big on the gym scene. I wanted to pack on as much muscle as I possibly could. So inevitably this ended 
up with me eating at all times throughout the day. And my sleep was horrendous. Um, so I started practicing intermittent fasting and within a matter of days, I noticed that I was having some of the best sleep of my life from just eating four or five, stopping eating four or five hours before bed. So in terms of intuitive fasting, what would be some of the benefits that someone following your programs uh, would, would see? Well, I mean, I, the, my approach with intuitive fasting and why I even called the book intuitive fasting on, on the surface, it's paradoxical. Like how could fasting ever be intuitive, but <laughs> metabolic, when someone's on that blood sugar roller coaster, that's going through those imbalances, I agree with them. Fasting is not intuitive. And I'm even having that conversation about intuitive eating in the book too, is that you see this movement of intuitive eating where, well, you know, it, it sounds nice, but for it to be more than just a nice, fluffy, rapid sounding soundbite, what let's put some work in our health to actually gain metabolic flexibility, which is fertile foundation for authentic intuitive eating, not just a nice sounding thing on Instagram. So I, I'm all for <laughs> having proper signaling pathways. Like if you have hormonal balance, if you have blood sugar balance, if you have proper gut brain axis communication, if you have proper satiety signals and hunger signaling, that is on a physiological level, the ingredients you need to have real intuitive eating and intuitive fasting, because why you're metabolically flexible. You have like a log in the fire that's burning fat for fuel. You can go longer without eating, not because you're willing it or because you're like gritting your teeth to get through this difficult fast and it's miserable. And it's like this obsessive thing. No, you just, you are able to because you're more metabolically flexible. That's how humans would have lived for a long time. So we're the, some of the benefits of fasting is that metabolic flexibility. It's sort of this proverbial yoga class for your metabolism, where if I like, I don't do yoga that much anymore, but when I used to do it like more, when I first showed up and did it, I'm like, wow, I suck at this. I feel horrible. How is the human body ever supposed to move like this? I'm like sweating. I'm anxious. My, my racing thoughts. It's like the most unnatural thing in the world. That's the same way with somebody that's metabolically inflexible, trying a fast, like what the heck? But it doesn't mean fasting is not for you or yoga is not for you or if someone's working out really hard in the gym and they've never worked out in their life. The gym's not just not for them. That's a preposterous statement. But it's like, how are you doing that? Are you doing too much too soon? Okay, that could be problematic. Just like with yoga class, I had to start with a beginner class and then work my way up to it and practice. So I see fasting as a, a sort of a yoga for your metabolism. And, and part of yoga is not just the movement on a physical level, but it's also the meditation. So it's, it's, it's also using fasting as a mindfulness tool and food as a mindfulness tool to grow, not just the physical uh, ingredients for metabolic flexibility and intuition, but also grow the mental, emotional, spiritual ingredients for intuition, which is present moment awareness, et cetera. So um, it, it's, it's really becoming more metabolically agile uh, and which means you can go longer without foods. You feel more satiated. You feel in control of your food. You're not, the food's not controlling you. You're not bound by insatiable cravings. You really have a lot of uh, a peace and a stillness to how you live your life. But there's a lot of benefits beyond that. I mean, because you're tapping into the state of ketosis, at least cyclically, uh, which is a beta hydroxybutyrate is the is known in the research as the fourth macronutrient. So we have 
protein, fats, carbs, and ketones. So it's a way to fuel your body. It passes through the blood brain barrier. It provides the brain very clean fuel. Um, it increases and supports BDNF, brain drive neurotropic factor, which enhances the making of new neurons and neurogenesis. It improves, as I mentioned earlier, mitochondrial biogenesis, which we need for cellular energy, our mitochondria, making new mitochondria is basically what it is. And it lowers inflammation. As a functional medicine practitioner, that's probably what I'm most excited about is that beta-hydroxybutyrate is a signaling molecule. It's an epigenetic modulator, meaning it, re, it does cool things for our health basically, and it lowers inflammation. That these pathways like NF-kappa B, the NLRP3 inflammasome, these are, these are cytokines or pro-inflammatory cells that are high in people with anxiety, depression, they're high in people with autoimmune condition, they're high with people with blood sugar problems, they're high with people with weight loss resistance, we lower that naturally. And we can increase these antioxidant pathways like the NRF2 pathway, the AMPK pathway. I, 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 as I'm talking about this, I think of Paracelsus, the physician within, all this stuff is just repairing things that need to be repaired. And uh, it is quite cool. It increases stem cells too. It shifts the microbiome. So it's really good for people with inflammatory GI issues. So if that's not reason to do it, I don't know what is. <laughs> I, I, I love that, man. Um, I want to um, come back to um, metabolic flexibility because this was something which I read in the book. Could you sort of double click on this principle for me? I'm really, really curious about this. Yeah. So that metabolic flexibility, let's talk about uh, burning uh, fuel. Like if you're talking about somebody, how are they fueling their day? How is your energy levels for the people that are listening? Like, how's your energy levels? What is your body using for fuel? We have two main forms of fueling your body, sugar for fuel. And that is the analogy that I use is like kindling on the fire. You're going to get some light, but it's going to be short lived. So you have to keep putting kindling on the fire, six small meals a day to get through the day or you're gonna get hangry and irritable, you're gonna get low blood sugar, you're gonna be miserable and you're gonna feel miserable and you're probably gonna make people around you miserable too. <laughs> and it, it, that's, look, there's relative differences here. We have clean kindling, which is like lots of whole grains, fruit sugar, starches, legumes from real foods. That is cleaner kindling without a doubt, but it's still kindling nonetheless, it's way better than uh, the garbage and the junk food and the refined processed sugar. Like, yeah, absolutely. But it's all, it's relatively better. It doesn't, and, and to be honest with you, we use clean carb cycling throughout the whole book. So it's not a bad thing, but I'm just saying, look, how do you have the best fire? It's actually not from kindling. It's kindling and a log on the fire. So I want clean kindling strategically because you need clean kindling. But I also need a log on the fire too. So uh, I'm just, metabolic flexibility is really getting out of just the kindling burning mode and saying, okay, we need a log on the fire too for more sustainably long burning fuel and energy throughout the day to feel great, to fuel your brain, to fuel your productivity, to fuel your hormones, to fuel all the things in your body. So being metabolically flexible is getting that log on the fire that's fat adapted or keto adapted. But I don't think, the best fire is only having the log on the fire either. So I don't think that you always have to be in ketosis. Some people have to for neurological symptoms and they're managing specific seizure disorders. Of course, there's specific things that we use it for. But for most humans that are just looking to feel great, that a cyclical approach 
either through fasting, a clean ketogenic diet or a ketotarian, which is a clean, mostly plant-based ketogenic diet, uh, the, or amplified and do them both together cyclically uh, is a, a massive modulator, a massive tool to maintain metabolic flexibility, which just, it's like that, that yoga class is I'm gaining flexibility and strength and stillness as I get better at yoga, you're going to get metabolic strength and flexibility and the stillness whenever you do this, this way of eating and, and way of not eating for a time. It's really interesting. I'd love to pick up on one thing which I experienced just anecdotally is I noticed that when I was eating, as you mentioned, you know, these small meals throughout the day, or in my case, you know, bigger meals <laughs> very often, yeah. I would yeah. I would love to know when I stopped doing that, I'd say would only eat in a six, seven, eight hour window. I noticed that I got rid of what I would call is brain fog cognitively i felt we talked about metabolically metabolic flexibility but i felt a lot more cognitively flexible so mm -hmm. why does fasting sort of improve cognition mm. well a few different pathways here that come to mind one is if you are and let me just be clear on this not everybody that's doing time restricted feeding which is a type of intermittent fasting or not everybody that's doing different types of intermittent fasting are necessarily tapping into ketosis even though that is mostly where a lot of the benefits do lie. Uh, but even if it's cyclical trace amounts of ketosis, you're still giving your body a break and you're producing that fourth macronutrient, beta hydroxybutyrate or BHB, and it passes through the blood brain barrier. So the brain specific benefits would be the neurogenesis and the improvement of BDNF, the lowered inflammation in the neuroinflammation, uh, lowering those pathways, increasing autophagy, actually the repair and recycling, sort of our body's renewal system of the body, uh, and increased mitochondrial biogenesis, like making new mitochondria. So those are the main mechanisms and balancing blood sugar. I mean, blood sugar imbalance is like anathema to optimal brain function. If you have blood sugar volatility, if your blood sugar is all over the place, you're, you're going to have brain fog. So that and if you look at the, the, the inflammatory component of brain fog, there's research to show that too, is hypothalamic inflammation. People that have word recall name problems, name, uh, word and name recall issues. And they, uh, some patients describe it to me as like feeling hungover. They feel like spaced out. They're not really engaged. They, um, it sometimes is congruent with fatigue, but not always. Sometimes they have decent energy, but it, like mentally they're just not there. That is uh, a one component of metabolic inflexibility, or at least some sort of fuel deprivation that you need to optimize. So we've established so far that a bit of hunger is apparently not too bad for you. There's a lot of benefits, supposedly. So I would love to know to the person listening to this, to the person that's listening to this and they're on a run or they're sitting at home or they're on their way to work, what would be the best bang for their buck? in terms of a fasting protocol? Is it 16-8 fasting? Is it uh, a fasting mimicking diet? What would you sort of recommend? When I built the, the four-week plan in the book, I really did it um, that way to be very accessible and very reproducible and repeatable. Uh, you can do it across, like basically anybody can do it and they're going to see benefits it's finite in the sense of you can do your own N of one experiment and re and compare and contrast after four weeks. 
I obviously, for most people, I'd recommend like repeating it and cycling through a couple of times until you get your rhythm, because not everything's going to be solved in four weeks for somebody that's very metabolically inflexible. But I want them to be way better off than they were before in four weeks and feeling encouraged, which encouraging and feel feeling better encourages you to keep doing something. So I, I you at least do it for four weeks. And, and I put a quiz in the book that they adapted from questions that I ask patients and they can just retake the quiz at the end of the four weeks to see am I improving? Are my symptoms improving? And checking, check in with your body. So what I did in the book was I started with a bigger eating window and then I got tighter with the eating window and then loosened it back up, back up. This is not, not chronic caloric restriction. And some people get that conflated with fasting. That's not the same thing. We're eating amply, but we're just eating in specific windows. So the bit, first week is a 12-12. And honestly, I think that that in many ways is under appreciated because it is a there's a solid amount of evidence to show that to be beneficial because you're not eating too late at night that's the goal of it at least and you're fasting through the night to allow the autophagy benefits to be upregulated and repair mechanisms and until you break the fast at breakfast in the morning so 12 12 is a good starting point but i'm pairing it in the book with the ketotarian diet because it's a clean ketogenic diet that is mimicking fasting so it's high fat moderate protein or, or supporting um protein moderation here to support mTOR uh, modulation, which is an important part of ketosis and the health benefits and lower carb approach, carb mainly coming from plant foods, fruit, low fructose fruits and non-starchy vegetables, fiber rich. So that's 12-12, which you're getting the benefits of the fasting mimicking even when you're eating and then you're fasting through the night. So that's week one. And week two is uh, about a 16 to 18 hour fast. Like you'd said, I do an 18 hour fast. So week two, I would recommend trying to do an 18 hour fast for the full week with the ketotarian diet. So you're getting the fasting mimicking benefits as well as doing a tip, uh, a tighter time restricted feeding window. Um, so like 12 to 6 PM, you could be eating, which is an 18 hour fast and a six hour eating window, but you can move that six hour eating window to work with your day and your schedule. It's flexible. Um, and then week three is the deepest fast. It's an almost OMAD fast. So it's one meal a day or an OMAD. But I said it's almost OMAD in the book because there's some studies to show if you're eating all your calories in a more traditional 24 to one fasting to eating window, which is the traditional OMAD approach, <clears throat> it's that it's too many calories to eat for some people in such a short period of time that it can increase the, something called the PKR pathway which increases something called metaflammation or basically systemic inflammation. I don't want that. So by loosening up a bit, so you can have basically one and a half meals a day or even two meals a day in a tighter window with a basically a 20 to 22 hour fast instead of a 24, it allows more time to eat. But I'm doing that non-consecutively in week three. So we're doing that every other day and we're going to a 12-12 on the odd day um, but week four, we're loosening it back up. So the, my point of saying, what's the type of fast? I think that variation, variability is a good idea because you're not always putting your body in one thing. You're putting a log and a kindling, a log and a kindling that is fueling your body. You're not always in deeper ketosis and you're not always putting kindling on the fire. So that's what I'm exploring over the four weeks. But it's another reason is this, is that if you do this after a couple cycles of the four weeks, bioindividuality, which is the heart of functional medicine, we're all different. I want people to not only gain metabolic flexibility, but I also want them to experiment these different types of fasts to know, oh, I felt better here. I didn't feel so good here. 
and they can really own it for themselves and see, oh, I, this works for me. This works with my schedule. I enjoy it. I feel the most there. And then they can adjust and be intuitive and build their own protocol after a couple of, of cycles of this. So that's what I want people to find out for themselves, what works best for their body. That's really interesting, really thoughtful. I'll come back to the, um, to the high fat diet, which you talk about in the book. Um, but before I go there, um, so on this show now, we've probably done maybe 190 or 200 interviews or, or something like that. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I did, uh, there was this one interview I did um, where after I'd finished the interview, I decided I was going to try a, I was trying to going to try a three day water only fast. Mm-hmm. So I got two days in, I was probably uh, maybe 40 odd hours in and I got this pounding headache. And after that, I decided I'm going to, put this on ice for the time being. Maybe I'll revisit it in the future. What yeah. are your thoughts on longer fast, three days, five days, seven days? What, what are your thoughts on them? I think that those are tools to consider for some people uh, in specific situations. So I know people firsthand that have chronic illnesses that do really well with them. And they attest that that was transformative in their health. So I think they have a place, but I see them as more deep therapeutic protocols that are needed for chronic health problems or people with deeper issues that are stuck at plateaus. And those are most often, especially if it's your first time, I should say this, if it's your first time doing something that I find that having some support system, whether that be a doctor or a fasting expert to some degree or some health coach, or even a support system online to work your way through it, that way you can modify it, you can support it appropriately, you can optimize it appropriately because it definitely isn't for the faint of heart, I think, for some people. But look, some people say after two days, it really is easy for them. So it's like after that initial stage, they really just get into such a place of deep ketosis that they're fine. That's not true for everybody, but um, you, it, everybody's different. But so I think that there's a place for it. But that's, I'm not doing those more, I don't call them extreme. I'm not doing those deeper, longer water fasts in the book but is something that I have implemented with patients over the years. That's interesting. That's interesting. So if we go back in the book, you say the ultimate combination is intermittent fasting and a high fat diet. Why is a high fat diet, um, uh, I guess, magnified with with intuitive fasting? Mm. Yeah. So if you're looking at the macronutrient ratio of a ketogenic diet, so a high fat, moderate protein, low carb, it is eliciting a lot of uh, the same mechanisms of fasting. And if you look at the research on like what researchers are looking at on the benefits of the ketogenic diet and fasting, it's basically the same thing. You're going to see a lot of the same benefits, autophagy, increased mitochondrial function, increased brain function, lowered inflammation levels, resetting the gut microbiome. It's basically the same thing because, I mean, in part because of beta-hydroxybutyrate being supported there, that fourth macronutrient is being increased with both. Um, so that's really the, why pairing the two amplifies the benefits of both. And I don't advocate fasting your way out of a poor diet. So you look at some of these studies that had to be done to see, can fasting stand on its own? And do we have to change much? Is that where the benefits coming from from the fasting or is it from calorie restriction or is it from um, changing the foods that you eat? Well, there's many studies that have shown, well, look, you don't actually have to change much of what you eat 
and you don't have to dramatically cut cal calories or cut calories at all, uh, there might be a slight caloric deficit and that has some benefits too, but it's, it's not all about the calorie counting, counting and it's not all about the food quality. It's also about the specific windows of eating and allowing more of a fasting time. So I just say, let's get all the best of both worlds. Let's bring it all together. And to be honest with you, it's the, the more stable your blood sugar is from the foods that you eat, the easier your fast is going to be. So if you're like eating tons of crap when you're eating and then going to fast, you are going to make your fast a lot more arduous than it needs to be. So I would just say, why don't you a use food as medicine anyways, because it's very healing in its own right but it's going to stabilize your blood sugar, make you more satiated and mimic some of the benefits of fastings. And then when you do fast, it'll be a lot easier. You won't even be thinking much about it because you're so satiated. That won't be true at the beginning, but the more you do it, it will be very true as you get better with this metabolic flexibility. What would be three of Dr. Will Cole's staple foods that people listening to this should include in their diet? Mm. I would say all olives and like polyphenol rich olive oil. Um, so a high quality olive oil. Can I just make that one? <laughs> uh, <laughs> avocados would be number two and wild cut fish would be three. That would, if I had to pick three, that would be the three ketotarian fats I would focus on. There's an exclusive for people over there. Uh, there's a quote of yours, which I read, which I want to get right um, which I find extremely profound. And you say that you can't heal a body that you hate. Mm -hmm. Did I get, did I get that quote? Right. Was that right? Yeah, I, that's you, right. Yeah. Could, could you talk about this quote? Cause I found this extremely profound when I heard this. Mm. Yeah. That when I say that, and it's a mantra in our clinic here, uh, I'm, I'm not in the clinic right now, but I, and when we are consulting patients, it's a massive, massive ethos of what we do because we're dealing a lot with complex very um, difficult cases that people aren't difficult, but their cases are difficult in the sense that they tried a million things and they're still struggling. And a lot of times it's autoimmune conditions and people with chronic infections and um, chronic fatigue syndrome, and they've done a lot, digestive issues, et cetera. And they, uh, in many ways, if you look physically on the mechanisms, the body is, is turning against itself. And I think that's quite, um, meta, it's a, a metaphor, a symbol of what's going on on an emotional level too. And they're probably connect. I mean, if you look at studies actually are connected because trauma and stress actually is linked to triggering autoimmune issues. So they're one and the same. So as above, so below in a way is that the people are so dealing with past traumas and they, and then that's compounded. So on top of that, when the physical stuff is actually triggered and they're dealing with flares that, they feel like their body's turned against itself and everything doesn't make sense. Like what, what should work doesn't work for them. And what's up is down and what's down is up. And they're so um, disillusioned as to what's going on and how to make sense of it all. So those are the, my, my people and the people I'm with 10 hours a day for the past decade. So you can't heal a body you hate really was born out of seeing that is that it's not an easy sentence. It sounds nice, but it's actually not an easy process but it's a necessary process. So you have to start to um, start that healing process on a physical level, but also on a mental, emotional, spiritual level to heal your relationship with your body and heal your relationship with your 
with food too, when you feel that food's turning against you too, when your food is causing all these types of reactions and you don't know which foods are working for you, um, which is a real place that many people find them in uh, and, and a situation that people, people find themselves in. So sustainable wellness is born out of loving your body enough to do things to feel to make you to make you feel good kind of how i started out this conversation is you can't heal a body you hate you cannot shame your way into wellness you can't obsess your way into health you can't orthorexic your way into feeling great you it's it's not going to work i get it it's sometimes when your body is in a state of flares and inflammation on a physical level i understand it the things are difficult right now, but we have to start untangling that pain and trauma, both physically, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually too. So that's really what it is. It's the genesis of sustainable wellness because people think, and let's just say they're not going through autoimmunity. That's just what I'm thinking about because that's what I'm used to seeing. But if you're just the average person, that's like, okay, I'm really into wellness. And I, I, and then it becomes this obsession or this shame-based thing or this orthorexic thing or this hateful thing and that's what's propelling you it's not going to be sustainable and if it is sustainable it's going to be such a source of dread that your life will be so miserable you won't it won't produce the fruit that you want it to produce so that's what i mean by you can't heal a body you hate that was extremely extremely beautiful so man obviously we're coming to the end of this conversation so i would love to know besides fasting um, this could be, as you mentioned, physical, spiritual, mental, emotional. What is one other thing that you would love for people to be doing for their health and well-being besides fasting? Mm. I, I would say our modern life is so noisy and so um, persistent, and it's built. A lot of modernity is built to distract us and to numb us in many ways. So I would say to that oftentimes. The, the, the mag- I actually said this in the book, actually, because it's something I tell my patients all the time, but the magic hides, oftentimes hides in the places we're ignoring. So it's like, let's go inwards to really look at the uh, places we don't want to go towards um, and, and rest in it and sit in there. And sometimes we need a professional there to walk us through it, certainly. But many times we don't. The work is for us to do. And a coach can help us or an expert, a therapist or a specialist can help us. But ultimately, it's our work. So just bringing acts of stillness into your life, completely disconnected from something. So whether that is going out in nature, and I talk about the, the research coming out of South Korea and Japan, like looking at Shinrin-yoku and forest bathing and just getting out in nature or, or sitting in stillness uh, in your house and being okay. Uh, you know, that, you know, we, we hear about FOMO, but cultivate a JOMO practice, the joy <laughs> of missing out. It's okay to miss out and it's okay to be, I mean, the pandemic is forcing people to have this, but you know what technology, this isn't like the last pandemic in 1918 with the Spanish flu when we had no technology like this. People are, way more uh their their lives are turned upside down in many ways but we still have zoom and facetime and social media and tv and netflix and this endless barrage of stimulation and distraction and connection i would just say connect with yourself for for a little bit create those pauses those moments of pause um and keep showing up and doing it because it's always interesting to me when i see people say meditation is not for me 
Well, normally the people that say that they're the ones that need to do it the most because you have <laughs> such racing thoughts and such racing mind that it's very uncomfortable to have nothing to distract themselves with. So the magic often hides in the places we're, we're ignoring. So that's what I would say for people. Amazing, man. Amazing. So today we were discussing your book, Intuitive Fasting. What books have you read that have been the most impactful in your life? Hmm. I mean, Eckhart Tolle is one of the best. I, I don't normally reread books, um, but Eckhart Tolle is the power of now and the new earth. It's one of those things that I have listened to. I, I read both. I've listened and read dozens of times and his voice, even on the audio book, like the audible, or if you, you know, any audio book that his Eckhart Tolle's voice is very calming in and of itself. Have you, I don't know if you've heard his voice or not before, but it's quite calming. Uh, he's like, has a German English yeah. <laughs> Canadian accent hybrid. It's quite uh, nice. And, and so I would say that those books are probably my favorite books because they're just like, in my mind, like manuals for, for logical sane living <laughs> because the modern egoic mind is so dysfunctional and it's just like he brings it to such a simple way that it's it's something you can always go back on and just implement these simple practices to great to gain present moment awareness which is so imperative for physical health i agree i agree um my last question for you today before we ask you to sign off and tell these guys where they can connect with you and some of the stuff we've talked about today is what makes a life worth living? Mm. Well, I mean, I, I really do feel like going back to that, my earlier statement of you can't heal a body you hate. I do feel like having an inner, like being friends with yourself and valuing and respecting and, and um, appreciating yourself is makes a life worth living. Cause uh, it, even if you don't have, like if everything else is taken away from you, um, if you just have enough of a knowingness of who you are and who you were created to be, like that to me is like, no matter what your circumstance, you're gonna be all right. And I think so much time we put our value in social status or likes on social media or how much we have in the bank or how much whatever, or how much we're distracting ourselves with physical things, whether that be TV or cars or clothes or all that stuff, or even something that is sacred, relatively sacred, like family, but it's still something external. Like what if, God forbid, something that happens and tragedy happens and you don't have that anymore. Does that mean your life isn't worth living? No, your life is grander than even that, even that. So I would say that that's, that makes a life worth living is having a good relationship with yourself. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, I, I've been a, a big admirer of yours. I've listened to your many podcasts over the years. It was a pleasure reading your book and, and man, finally getting you on the show. So I yes. just want to thank you so much for coming on. Can you tell these guys where they can connect with you? Thank you so much for the kind words. I appreciate it. Um, everything's at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. And on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole, on Twitter at, at Dr. Will Cole. So yeah, they can connect with me there. Amazing, man. So uh, all the resources which we discussed today, intuitive fasting, uh, Will's social medias, 
you'll be able to uh, just swipe up on this episode and you can just click right on it. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. We will see you again next week. Will, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thanks, buddy. Well, guys, that wraps up this episode of the Freedom Pack podcast. It was a pleasure speaking to Will. Very, very interesting. Fasting, it's it's like, you know, the, the new hot girl on the block. <laughs> she's she's come round again, you know. It's, uh, it's something really to consider. There's a lot of great science about her at the moment. Um, if you were looking for something similar to this episode, uh, we did a great one with Dr. Frank Lippmann. I believe that's episode 160, which kind of talks about this stuff. So, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star iTunes review. We have a healthy, wealthy, and wise newsletter, which is below. You can just swipe up on this episode. Um, and on top of that, guys, if you enjoy our work, please shoot us an email. You know, freedompact.gmail.com. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel where this interview and all of our interviews are now uploaded to our YouTube channel. If you go there, please hit the subscribe button to stay in contact and yeah guys thank you so much for tuning in this was a pleasure and we will see you on monday